Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We got nothing but important news today. All right. So this may be this may turn into the most important show of the year because deer season is upon us. Archery season has begun, but in a month of firearm season, the, you know, like the real part of it. You know what I mean? It's when things are really flying in the woods. And uh, how many of you are going to be eating venison like your uncle shot, your grandpa shot, you shot, a lot of you, most of you. But we got a problem. There's lead shot everywhere. Lead shot has been part of the normal system, just like what we think of just regular for for what, dozens of years, hundreds of years? I don't know. But, uh, well, we've got some new data that says, like, we need to switch right away, fast. Something's got to be done. This is important stuff. After we talk about the most important news of the year, we'll talk to some other good big news, which is that Tulabi is a new chef, local Minnesotan. It is the last weekend of the Plates for Good program. If you want to go out and splurge and treat yourself and then you also want people in need to benefit, this is the last weekend to do that. We're going to talk about those two things. So good show. Don't. Don't touch that dial. All right. So first off, I've got Carol Henderson here. This is his last official DNR uh, showing he is retiring on Tuesday after 45 years. I could devote an entire weekend, I think, to Carol Henderson stories. You're wondering who went to Alaska and got us trumpeter swan eggs so we could rebuild the trumpeter swan population. That'd be Carol Henderson. He has been the uh, non-game wildlife program supervisor for the Minnesota DNR for a long time. And he's been working there for 45 years. Do you have questions about lead shot, lead bullets, lead in your venison? Text us, 81807. Carol, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate being here. So on behalf of all Minnesotans who like trumpeter swans, thank you. Well, I was walking around Cedar Lake just being my urban self couple last fall, and there were a bunch of trumpeter swans. I was shocked. It was like right here, right off 394 in the middle of the city. Oh, yes. They're just an absolutely wonderful, inspiring bird. And we released 370-plus swans um, back in the uh, late 1980s. And now we have over 20,000 swans in the state, and they're expanding to new marshes everywhere. And and they're so exciting for people to enjoy. They're so big. Yes. They weigh up to 35 pounds. They're the biggest waterfowl in the world. They look like they weigh much more than 35 (laughs) pounds. They have their wings, and then they're so big. They're so noble. They're just... Uh, uh, just astonishing to see. Yeah, they're on the same level as bald eagles in terms of inspiration. Yeah, and so you've got to feel, I want a career like yours. You look back <laughs> after 45 years and you think, I did good. I I made change in the world. Like, oh, that's you. you. Yeah, it's it's been a wonderful career and worked with a lot of wonderful people along the way. Yeah, I bet. And so you saw, you were, you were like, you saw it all. You saw the the raptor populations crash. You saw uh, with the DDT and the different pesticide use, you saw the the rebound. Yes, we've watched this from the early stages when 
eagles in Minnesota were coming back. And then we captured eagle chicks just ready to leave their nest uh, back in the early 90s and uh, donated five eagles per year to places like New York, Missouri, Arkansas, North Carolina, Georgia, to help them restart their eagle populations. And now they're doing well throughout much of the east from with Minnesota eagles. Minnesota Eagles. I didn't know that. Are you serious? We got Minnesota Eagles that were helping out in New York and all yeah. over the East Coast? Yeah. All right. There. More things to feel proud and excited about. But this is what we're here to talk about today. You emailed me and you were like, we need to talk about lead shot in food. I had no idea that this was happening. So why don't you break it down? You and the wonderful people the DNR have been x-raying. Can you explain Yes, well, uh, we've found over the years working with the Raptor Center at the University of Minnesota that there's been a long-term problem with eagle deaths in Minnesota because they were dying of lead poisoning. And one of the things we were looking at is that the timing that they just determined is that most of the eagles were dying during and after the fall deer season. And it related to the fact that the eagles were eating the refuse from the, the processed deer when they got the deer in the woods, the eagles eat the refuse. All right. I don't know if we're allowed to say gut piles on the radio, uh, but that's where uh, we're we're going there. Uh, Maybe (laughs) Entrails. Entrails. All right. So when you, obviously everybody knows you kill a deer in the field, you need to process it. Field uh, dress it. Yeah. To field, you need to field dress it so that it doesn't, you know, go bad. Like this is just standard practice. You leave those in the woods and you showed me a picture that blew my mind. Yes, the eagles come in and they'll eat this. And it's not just one eagle. There might be four or five, six eagles all fighting over that one pile of free food. And the eagles even respond to the sound of gunfire to go find where that is. And See, I did not know this. I did not know that an eagle hears a gunshot and is like, i got to go see what that's about. I'm going toward the gun. Really? Yes. And actually, we've had reports like from Pat Reddick's nephew from the Raptor Center that the eagle will follow the hunters out into the woods and wait for the hunter to shoot the deer. <laughs> Really? So they, they are a smart bird, and but they, it gets them into trouble. So my interest in this started with looking after eagles and trying to figure out how we can reduce eagle mortality. So this is the the proverbial canary in the coal mine, yes. but it's the eagle in the gut pile. It's the so eagle it's... in the gut pile problem. <laughs> and, and so we looked at what was going on, but all of the major ammo manufacturers are have switched over to producing non-toxic copper ammunition for deer hunting. Okay, but no, wait, let's just keep going with this. So you you looked at, you found all of these eagles were dying because of the gut piles. Yes. And then a light bulb went off in your head and you said, well, if the the shot is making it all the way into the entrails, it is also in the muscle. Yes, and the, the Department of Natural Resources section of wildlife did a study back in 2008, 2009, where they did a... a, a research project shooting into dead sheep to see how does the bullet splinter when it hits and because that would be simpler, uh, similar in uh, shape and conformation to a deer. And the, the little lead fragments from a bullet, they splinter out and they go up to 12, 14 inches away from the wound channel and become embedded in the meat. And so it's not just eagles anymore. Because we're saying, okay, people oh, are bringing yeah. this home in their venison. And so you did this study where you looked at, so a lot of people donate meat to food shelves, and that's fantastic. And then you, the DNR x-rayed them and found, and this is where my jaw just fell to the ground, you found that 15% of the meat that was being donated had these lead fragments in it. You right. extrapolate. This means that people that are eating venison, like, Fifteen percent of them are eating lead, and people—if you don't know—lead is 
poison. It is really bad for you. It will damage your brain. It damages young brains. It'll make you dumb. It'll give you neurological problems. You do not want to be eating lead. And so we are here to say, everybody, got to switch to copper shot right away. Right. And it's a simple change. The prices are about the same. They're actually more effective, more accurate. There are people who have practiced with copper ammo and gotten an, a group of it at 300 yards, an inch and a half in a circle. Uh, it, it's very accurate. So it's a better bullet. It's a better bullet. And, and it's not going to poison you. And, and this is when I need everybody who's listening to go be a busybody. Your lovely, you know, your wonderful uncle who gives you venison, your great cousin. I mean, just... Just be like, this is not like me, but I got to ask, you know, and if and uh, and just we need to switch everybody We need to spread the word because I cannot have my people being lead poisoned. This is not OK. Right. And it's one of those things where it's not going to kill you, but it's going to degrade your abilities for older people. It might be cognitive abilities for children. It can actually reduce their IQ. It's, it's not recommended for expectant mothers. All of these things are negatives, and it's easily changed. And the price of the copper ammo is comparable now, about a dollar and a half to $2 per shell. And a good hunter isn't going to use more than four or five shots per season. So you're not looking at even hardly $10 for the cost of your shells. Yeah, so this is just, we got to spread the word. And I saw these these numbers, about 15% of the, the venison that you're seeing is got lead shots, you know, just like through it. And I think... We're just extrapolating. Nothing better than pheasant in the fall, right? I mean, yeah. but everybody knows you. You know, when you're eating pheasant, that somebody shot you. Yeah. You know, don't chew down too hard because there's probably shot in there. That also needs to not be lead. Yeah, the, and the non-toxic shot shells on upland areas, those pellets fall on the ground and they get subsequently eaten by a number of birds that pick up the pellets as seeds. They think they're seeds, so. Uh, any way we can reduce the re- release of lead into the environment. And it's all going to get thing. down into the water if it just lies there. And so what the f- operative word, the words we're looking for are non-toxic shells, right? Yes, non-toxic. Some of them are going to be copper or copper composites, maybe with zinc. Uh, for shot shells, upland hunting, look for tungsten or bismuth uh, types of shells. Uh, there also are some uh, tin types of shells. But when I looked at the deer hunting, last year we had a half a million deer hunters. They took about 200,000 deer. Average deer, about 40 pounds of venison. If you look at 15% of that venison, that's, well, this 8 million pounds of venison harvested in Minnesota last year. 15% would be 1.2 million pounds of lead-tainted venison that people ate this past year. That's not smart. <laughs> that's not good. No, and, and, there's, and there's no benefit. There's no benefit to lead. You're not like, oh, i got to get my... USDA right. amount of lead. <laughs> it's and, and really the most, bad. The most important byline here is that this is not a criticism of hunting. I mean, not we, at all. This is a wonderful tradition in Minnesota, and it's something we really care about. But it's just about how we hunt as a responsible person. No, nor was switching from switching from uh, you know lead paint to to latex paint. That was not a criticism of painting. This no. is just a better practice. So right. you know. we don't want those unintended consequences that continue after the deer season. No, absolutely not. We do not want lead in our blood. We're against it. This is not a radical proposition. This is not. Uh, I, I wouldn't think a partisan issue. Anybody no. who wants lead in their blood is a 
maybe already has lead in their right. blood because they're not thinking straight. This it's it's a terrible thing to happen to your nervous system. You don't want it. No, and we don't want to feed that to our children and our grandchildren and our friends. Anybody. It's, no. It's, it's uh, deleterious to everything. All right. So, Carol Henderson, this is a this is. So you've had this fascinating life where you've helped Minnesota in all these ways. You brought back eagles. Uh, now you're le- now they're letting us know that we have poison in our blood supply. That's an unusual t- <laughs> twist of events. Thank you, eagles, for alerting us to this bad yeah. situation. And uh, I don't know if you're allowed to talk about this, but we're also you're also looking at uh, toxic uh, uh, oh sinkers and yes. Uh- Within the next few days, there should be a publication in the Federal Register about a plan that we have submitted to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service because the BP oil spill back in 2010 uh, caused impacts on loons that were wintering in the Gulf of Mexico. And so we submitted a plan for loon conservation for Minnesota. We were the only northern state that applied for funding, and they're going to be announcing this probably Monday or Tuesday, very, very soon. And part of that package will be to promote the use of non-toxic jigs and sinkers, the tiny ones, like split shots and the little jigs. Uh, there are a number of Minnesota manufacturers, uh, many of them up in the Brainerd area. They're already making this, but it's sometimes hard to find them in the sporting goods stores. You need to ask for it. Okay, uh, we, we need to buy non-toxic, non-toxic jigs and sinkers. They're made of tungsten or bismuth. Right, because that's going to end up in your food, too, because you go fishing, then you're going to eat the fish. This is not good. Well, it's not so much a problem with people eating it, but loons, when they dive to the bottom, they pick up little pebbles to grind up the minnows they eat. But if they pick up a lost jig or sinker, like a split shot, all it takes is one split shot to kill the loon. And we have dead loons that are turned in every year because they ate lead. And so if you want to save the state bird, use non-toxic fishing tackle. If you want to save the state, I mean, the national bird, the bald eagle, Use non-toxic ammo for deer hunting. And you want to save yourself. Yes, and Use yourself. It. <laughs> <laughs> just a, a basic self-preservation. Uh, stop eating lead. There, yeah. I'm just radical. I'm coming out. We do not want. <laughs> and uh, so, of course, people are going to ask when I see, you know, venison jerky in the grocery store. Is this what we're talking about? That is not it. Um, deer that enter, venison that enters the food supply through commercial uh, means that is goes through the same process that you know cows and chickens do it's commercial slaughterhouse there's no lead shot involved in that so don't this is not apply to venison you know your venison jerky that you're getting at the co-op this applies to you know people shooting uh you know firearm season starts in a month this is for everybody who's like i think i will buy some bullets so i can get this going you got to you got to do the non-toxic thing i do not want you to have lead poisoning None of you, no. all of you. I want you to not have that. And, and so the decision on what ammo to buy needs to be more of a family decision because in the past, deer hunters basically just would buy what they've always used. And or, and now they need to get some further input on these other consequences and look for the non-toxic because they're really good. Most of the people I've talked to have said once they switched over to the copper ammo, they never switched back. Right. All right. This is your homework, everyone. I'm not asking you to do small things. I want you to start talking about this to the hunters in your life. If you're a hunter, start talking about it to the other hunters in your life. We do not want anyone eating lead. That's uh, that's in the past. Okay. <laughs> Carol Anderson, I can't thank you enough. And on behalf of everybody, thank you for bringing back trumpeter swans and oh. all the work you've done in Minnesota. You have made it a better place. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful life and a really happy one. 
in yeah. terms of helping the, the environment and the wildlife all around us. And listeners, we got a treat. We got to hear Carol Henderson two days before he retired. This is a very cool thing. All right, when we come back, we're going to not be talking about lead. We're going to be talking about tomatoes. Ugly tomato season. It's upon us. <laughs> all right. We're going to switch from talking about lead and deer to talking about uh, imperfect tomatoes. So you have you been to the farmer's market this week? If you go, you're going to see baskets and baskets of tomatoes that taste good but look bad. They're kind of exhausted, as we all are. It's hard. It's hard to be a misfit tomato, right? <laughs> They're a little bruised. You're a little overripe. You're a little underripe. you got all kinds of problems. But uh, you're here, and you're still wonderful, you you ugly tomatoes at the end of the season. All right, so I put up at wccoradio.radio.com slash Dara. There's a link on my Facebook page if you can't find it, Dara.grumdahl. got a straight link into the imperfect tomato recipes. You can either look at recipes or just work with the ideas because they're, it's, you know, this is, what I, this is how you do. All right, one of them I got is Jamie Oliver, the British chef. Jamie Oliver smashed tomato and olive salad. So what he does is he takes the small tomatoes, your cherry tomatoes, kind of smashes them, add really briny olives and red wine, basil, black pepper. You think, well, you don't usually put vinegar in these kind of things. But here, because you got this imperfect tomato, it kind of blends it all. It's a delicious thing, and it, it just makes it, it just covers up all imperfections. You can do this with salsa, too. That's another salsa thing. But you know how to make salsa. I'm not putting that recipe up. All right, I got more recipes. I've got tomato-rubbed bread, as they do in Barcelona. You ever been to Spain and you do that thing? They take some bread and they rub it with garlic. They rub it with tomato. That is just so good. And you can do that. It's perfect with your kind of ugly, messed-up tomatoes. If you can actually get some char on that bread by toasting it, oh, that is living large. I got the recipe up for that. What about a fresh blender tomato sauce? Get that big bushel of tomatoes. Take the take the bad parts out. Throw the rest in the blender. Whirr. Then you got a fresh sauce. That is good. If you make enough of this, you can freeze some. You'll be living like it's summer for months. Blender gazpacho. I already heard from somebody on Twitter. They're making this one because they looked at the recipes. They were like, this is good. Put all the things in the blender again. Tomatoes, onions. I'm kind of, you know, like I, I'm never quite totally there with the cold soups, but gazpacho, maybe clear out the liquor store and the rosé. It's got to be on bargain bargain shelf by this time. Invite your friends over. What are, you, what are you doing? You're having an ugly tomato party. Why not? You need a reason to have a party. That's a that's a good one. And my last, this I make this all the time. It's just kind of a kind of a dirty, silly. Caprese thing where you take some kind of cheese, mozzarella. If you don't have mozzarella, you can work with feta. Cube up your tomatoes. Add cucumbers if you got them. Make a little dressing with pesto. That is just, get you get so much done with that salad. All right, these are all up at the WCCO Radio website. They look good. They are delicious. You're going to love our ugly tomatoes. And we come back, we're going to talk to Matt Leverty from Tulabi. Talk about the plates for good participation last weekend to treat yourself and do good in the world. That's what we're talking about when we come back. Yeah, we've got Matt Leverty here. This is a 
Uh, I didn't know Matt had taken over Tulabi. They're keeping it on the down low. That is the hot, buzzy restaurant in the North Loop that never quite found its identity, but still had all the people piled up to play pool at the very wonderful pool table. And uh, I, little bird told me, Matt Leverty, your dad is listening. He's a big CCO listener. Oh, he is. Yeah, he's a he's a he's a huge CCO fan. Has been for about oh I don't know. 60-something years. I'm, I'm not going to date him on air. Fantastic. <laughs> Hello, Matt's dad. You want to shout out? Yeah, Mark Leverty. He actually retired from 3M yesterday after 37 years. So happy retirement. Amazing. So is he going to be at Tulaby hanging out, getting some soup? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he will be. He's He stops by whenever he can. He always claims that it's too far of a drive. Uh, he lives in the Hudson area now, but um, I tell him that. You got that new bridge. Yeah, well, I guess I said, that's more of still water. I said, I said, it's 45 minutes. I used to live, you know, 2,000 miles away. He can come and visit me every once in a while. See that? <laughs> Mark Leverty, get in your car. <laughs> All right. So, uh, everybody, t- you grew up in the Stillwater area and you, st- where was your, you started cooking? Yeah, I did. Um, started, you know, my only real job that I ever had was cooking. Um, started when I was 14 years old. Uh, started. Work, I worked at a fast food restaurant in Hudson. I lived in the Lakeland area, which is right across the bridge. And uh, yeah, I went to school at UMD. Um, while I was there, I was working in kitchens up there. I was I was studying to be a, a statistician. I love sports, and I wanted to do something with that and math. And um, I was like, oh, I want to work for ESPN or something like that. And I realized. Uh, real quickly that that was kind of a pipe dream. And while I was doing all of this, I was cooking in restaurants. I worked at a place called Sarah's Table up in Duluth. Oh, sure. Um, that's a great place. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I basically said, all right, maybe I'll give this cooking thing a try. I think I like this a little bit more. And it was, you know, my, my grandmother was a, a home ec teacher at Stillwater Schools for years. And she I love it. home ec. Yes. Yes. She is a dying breed. And she, uh, she, you know, she, she showed me how to cook at a young age and, um, uh, I always loved making lefsa with her and, and, and you know, learning about Whoa, the Minnesota Whoa, a born lefsa maker. You may be the first chef in town <laughs> I've talked to who knows oh. how to do that. That's a, you know, manipulating the paddle, the whole oh, thing. Man. That's hard to do. She, is, she was, uh, yeah, and she's still doing it. Uh, you know, she's pushing 90 and she still makes all her own, all her own food. Oh, seriously? Um, I'm going to yeah. talk to you. Maybe we can get a, a Saturday afternoon class that she can lead at Tulabi. Oh, she would love it. Uh, she would love it. She's, uh, <laughs> she... She was a great teacher, um, but, you know, more so I was just kind of the pesky kid, like, bothering her while she was making Thanksgiving dinner or something like that. So, um, yeah, anyway, so I moved back to Minneapolis after college. I love a world where being a statistician is, is impossible, but being a star chef is in reach. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I thought it was kind of a – for me, everyone else was like, oh, that's such a strange jump. Um, but for me, it was kind of something that was really – once I started doing it full time, I was like, okay, this is it. This is it. I still love sports. I still watch sports. I'm a huge Minnesota sports fan. But, I mean, cooking is my my gig, and I, I'm so happy to be back in the cities doing it. So so I was very happy. I didn't realize that you had taken over Tulabi uh, because it had been this kind of weird land of carpetbaggers where they're like, <laughs> yeah. we're a Minnesota restaurant, and we know nothing about what this you know what's in this food shed, what's local, what could be. And Absolutely. it was just a, uh, as a restaurant critic – 
very annoying to just constantly just be like, we're the most Minnesotans. Like, you don't even know what you don't know. No. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's uh, when I came in there and I had done my research on the place and it it definitely had a, um, you know, there was a little lacking of identity, especially from a place that uh, just lives and breathes Minnesota and all other aspects of the of the hotel. Um, So I. I, I like to think that I'm a good I was a good influence on the uh on the restaurant since I came but um yeah really all I'm trying to do is just get back to the get back to it being Minnesotan and and being um you because know. we have the greatest food we have I I will consistently maintain that the food here the ingredients are fantastic and and people just don't know and you I feel like there is a learning curve. You have to be here. You have to hang out. And then you're just like, well, these Wild Acres chickens are amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And working with Pat at Wild Acres and I had worked with him, uh, you know, 11, 12 years ago in the city. And when I came back, and Pat was the first one I called and Pat, I need some ducks. Pat, I need some chickens. So, you know, they it, the working relationship that we have with farmers and, and, and growers in this state is just second to none. And I'm I'm glad I came back in the spring summertime as opposed to the wintertime because I probably would have been really depressed by the offerings. But like the, it was such a great, bountiful summer, and and it's it's I mean it was I heard you guys had a really bad winter last year, so I'm it was I'm, long. It yeah, felt long. I'm glad that I I'm glad that I missed that. I don't know if I'm ready to. I always say that, ah, once you're a Minnesotan, you're 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 born into that, and you you can survive the winters, but. Um, living in Las Vegas for the last 10 years and coming back here. I'm a little nervous for my first winter back. but Oh, well, I know we were just saying that we're not into, you know, the Nordic foods. But I will say the one thing that I have enjoyed the most about reading the weird Nordic chefs and their cookbooks and all this is that they get very into, like, old beets, old potatoes. Yeah. Like what happens to a potato that's been sitting in the root cellar and oh, yeah. then it starts to get wrinkly? Your first instinct is... Throw it away. It doesn't look yeah. good. But actually, the, those Nordic chefs have, have brought new love to the wrinkly old winter vegetables. So. Oh, for sure. And, and, and that's kind of the cool – that's kind of what we're doing at Tulabi now is almost preparing for the winter because um, I have the luxury of having such a great big space that I – you know, we have a fermentation cellar. We have, um, we have a huge butcher room, so we're aging a bunch that's of meats. That's so cool. We're, we're taking vegetables. We're fermenting. We're pickling. We're preserving just so that we can have all this great produce available for the winter. So that was kind of like the first thing that I did uh, with my chefs there. Is like, all right, we got to save all of this stuff so that we can have it throughout the winter. So, yeah, I mean, it's that's the cool part about, you know, the whole Nordic influence of, of, of Tulabi is just those ancient practices of of preserving and, and gearing up for a terrible, terrible winter, which I'm sure – yeah, we'll see. We'll the see. Birchwood Cafe put out a cookbook oh, was it last year or two years ago, and they divvied up the winter into, I think it was eight seasons or something. And when at first I was like, we don't have eight seasons. It's silly. <laughs> uh, but then I actually lived with it for a while, and they divided up winter into kind of like early winter when it's super fun to see all the you know root vegetables. And then, and then like, you know, I think they call it frost when it's just only – only the sturdiest roots are still with us, you know, and it's a it's a good way of thinking about it because it really is, you know, November winter is totally different than February winter. Oh, yeah, for sure. And it's, you know, uh, coming from a place that where, you know, growing up here, learning about how to cook in, in the seasons. And then I'm, I'm so excited to come back to it because 
it's living in the California area or Las Vegas area, you have the luxury of having the best produce at all times. And now it's, it's and a it makes more, you lazy and soft. Oh, it for sure does. <laughs> no, it, it does. But it, it's, you know, it's, I'm so excited to have the, you know, when it's, when it's February and there's nothing around, I'm excited to be able to come up with stuff that'll still taste good and, and it'll speak to the seasons and speak to the, to the place that we're at. So that's fantastic. Yeah. All right. So the reason that we're having you here, and I'm so happy that you're here, is that we wanted to talk about the fact that you're supporting the Second Harvest Heartland, the Big Hunger Charity. You're supporting their Plates for Good program, which we at CCO are big fans of. Yes. Yeah. I'm, we, uh, uh, an old friend, Sue Zellickson, uh, stopped into Tulabi um, uh, a couple months ago and um, got, me, got me in touch with Second Harvest Heartland. And that was something that I think Tulabi or the whole Hewing Hotel was ready to start, you know, being on the philanthropic side and, and start giving back. And um, I had done a lot of stuff before w- with previous uh, gigs with, you know, working with the Ronald McDonald House, doing, you know, things with doing things with, uh, you know, Second Harvest in, in other states. But this is uh, I'm, I'm happy to give back because it's, you know, it's a it's a huge subject and, you know, childhood hunger is is so prevalent amongst uh you know so many parts of the country but minnesota is is yeah the um, last the last numbers i saw were uh you know it's just just so heartbreaking so 1 in 11 households in minnesota are affected by hunger uh, 10% of those people are seniors and 33% are under 18 so right. you know like we uh, we we live in such a complicated world where we're throwing out so much food and so many people are hungry. And Second Harvest Heartland is kind of the gold standard. They work with a lot of corporations to kind of take in any foods that are falling out of the supply chain and for some reason or other. They are really able to maximize any money they get. Uh, $1 provides meals for three people. Uh, that's amazing. So the, the way th- this is the last weekend of the Plates for Good campaign. Yep. It was all of September. So, if, you know, you're a procrastinator like me. Maybe you waited till today, <laughs> but it's not too late. You go out or you can go to, go to Tulabi for brunch in the morning. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 10% of your bill, like, it can make a big difference. Yeah, we're doing, um, you know, basically what they asked us to do was, you know, if you, whatever whatever donations you could do was great. And um, I think uh, Tulabi, as well as a lot of restaurants, we kind of took that and ran with it. So, yeah, we're donating 10% of all food sales for um, Sundays, Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays, um, to second harvest. So Sunday, yeah, is the last day. Uh, um, so we're open for brunch. Yeah. We, we would love to be able to, to help, help second harvest as much as we can. So yeah, come Fantastic. on down. All right. So if you want to find out more about their other restaurants too, if you're looking for something close to your house, platesforgood.org. Uh, Matt, I can't thank you enough for coming in today. Yeah, thanks. It was awesome to be here. All right, shout out to your dad. Go visit your son. You can't (laughs) just let him be cooking for other people. He's got to cook for you, too. All right. (laughs) When we come back, we'll do the Ask Me Anything. The text line is up, 81807. Dara here. I am back. All right. This is a part of the show where I answer your questions. I got one. Where can I get a great recipe for pho? That's a Vietnamese soup and authentic ingredients. This is a great question because what is better than a real Vietnamese 
bowl of soup, like just so the broth can be so good. And that is your key to looking for a recipe. I will post one up on my Facebook page. I can't quite get one. But the most important thing is if you're starting with like a can or a box or whatever of broth, it's not going to be good. You need to actually make the broth. And I will say the instant pots and stuff have made this kind of easier. You need you need bones to make this good. You need beef bones or chicken bones or a combination because the, you want the broth to have really good, deep flavor. So that's that's it. I will uh, – if you're looking at recipes and they're starting with cans of bullion, whatever, you know what I mean, that's not where you want to go. You You need all that. And then in terms of the other ingredients, maybe – Gal and gal, maybe lemongrass. Those most of the Asian markets uh, will have those at this point because we're blessed in the Twin Cities with a, a very vibrant Southeast Asian community, and um, they have done the work of getting all those good ingredients here. All right, so I got another other from the tax line. Uh, we got a question. We got a, uh, questions about the thing. All right, so we forgot to mention vultures in the uh, wildlife that's damaged by lead shot. Yeah, that is a good point. Vultures are part of part of it too. I got love for vultures. Why not? Um, I got a question, which is that, uh, ah, so all, I got one, one texter wrote in, say that any and all deer my friends and I have donated have been shot with arrows. Oh, that's interesting because we didn't even think about how much you know, so if fifteen percent of what they're examining has has lead shot in it, then that doesn't even count the arrows. So, and good for you if you're a bow and arrow hunter. That's a lot of skill. I my hats off. Um, I got another question. Want me to remember crows and coyotes or coyotes? I never know how to pronounce that. Um, it is saying that they when they see a, a gut pile, everything else comes from the entrails. So we got to protect all those. Um, I have a question. Most hunters now are on board with no lead. We like the birds and animals, et cetera. We are not the knuckle draggers. Some would portray us as. Um, I would say that, you know, if people are portraying hunters as knuckle draggers, they're lame, and I don't like those people. I would never do this. To me, this is the same as lead in paint. Like, we didn't know that lead in paint was having, that we were getting lead poisoning from it. And this isn't just, I mean, I, I super care about the eagles. I super care more about the people. You guys, I do not want your crock pot full of venison meatballs to, to be putting lead in your body. So, you know, this is, a, I think, you know, this is one of those no harm, no foul situations. We did not know that there was lead in it. Now we know. But tell people. And if, you know, and if, if this comes across as criticism of hunting, it is not. We are the top predators. The you know we have got to this this is our environment. We took out the top predators. We are now the top predators. If we want to have a healthy environment, you know we can't have just a babillion deer. But that would be crazy. It's not going to work like that. So I'm all for hunting season. I'm all for hunting. I'm all for hunting and not eating lead. That sequence of events. All right. So I got another question about uh, roast beets. How to how to peel them. Well, here's what I like to do. I like to put a little oil on my hands so they don't get stained and then just, you know, kind of rub them back and forth. It's handwork. I don't find peeling roast beets works with tools so much. Um, so if they're good in roast, the skins should p- pretty much slip off. That's what I got there. All right, next week, 
We're going to have Tim McKee on the show. He's a big, fancy chef. All over Minnesota, a bunch of people in restaurants are making a big showing about supporting sustainable seafood. We are the leaders. You know I've talked about this before. I love Minnesotan and our efforts to be good people and make the world a better place. We'll talk about all that with fish next week. Till then, you know, go out there and get an apple. It's peak apple season. Triumph of fruit. And I will meet you back here next week on Off the Menu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.